Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today, today's program, we'll talk about that recent TikTok video where several labor nurses sparked outrage regarding their disparaging comments. Now I'll speak with a local nurse who says this shouldn't be alarming because there's a lot of disrespect and abuse some patients and their family members face during delivery. Also, longtime Georgia Equality Executive Director Jeff Graham shares legislative goals impacting the LGBTQ Georgians for this legislative session. All important conversations coming up, but first this. DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston says her office will not conduct an investigation regarding last week's state trooper-involved shooting that resulted in an officer being shot and the death of, an, of another individual, Manuel Ture, near the South DeKalb County site where that police and fire training facility is supposed to be built. After careful consideration, I have decided to voluntarily recuse the office of the DeKalb County District Attorney from the review of the investigative file and potential prosecution of the officer-involved shooting involved in this case. Although there is no legal conflict with accepting this case upon completion of its investigation, I believe recusal is the best course of action related to this element of the joint operation. Now, Boston went on to take it further, saying this was the reason behind the decision. My decision is based upon several factors, including our ongoing involvement in the multi-jurisdictional task force charged with holding those responsible who commit crimes and ensure a safe environment in the process. The overreaching reasoning for my recusal is that it is simply the right thing to do. It avoids the appearance of any impropriety and is consistent with the mission of my office and our efforts to instill community trust and confidence in our criminal justice system. As such, we have formally notified the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia of our voluntary recusal in this matter and have requested the appointment of an independent prosecution agency. Boston went on to reiterate, this recusal is only for the officer-involved shooting death of Manuel Tehran, who was with the group Defend the Forest. We remain committed to the prosecution of any and all cases relating to the Atlanta Public Training Facility. The only recusal we are making today is specifically in to the officer-involved shooting investigation. In related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, in giving his State of the State address today, mentioned the shooting. Just a few blocks from where we are sitting today, he still continues his recovery. He and his wife have both our thanks and our praise, but also our prayers. I had the chance to meet with him earlier this week, and his resolve continues to be strong, but he continues to need our prayers. Just this past weekend, when out-of-state rioters tried to bring violence to the streets of our capital city, state patrol, sheriff's deputies, and Atlanta police quickly brought peace and order. That's just the latest example while here in Georgia, we will always back the blue. But there is opposition as many organizations and some lo- other elected officials are calling for a separate entity like the Department of Justice to investigate the shooting death. Now, also in that state of the state address, Kemp pledged a statewide effort in addressing what else? Housing affordability. There is greater opportunity in literally every zip code in Georgia. But many of those communities struggle to provide adequate workforce housing. But transformational projects, good paying jobs, and new investments are worth little if there aren't options for hard working Georgians to live where they work. 
We're talking about the people who are teaching our children, keeping our community safe, who provide life-saving support in times of trouble, and those who make the goods and provide the services that make a community such a great place to call home. That's why I'm creating the Rural Workforce Housing Fund, enabling the state to partner directly with local governments to develop sites across the state for workforce housing. Now also on the governor's mind, education. When I first ran for governor, I promised to raise teacher pay by $5,000. With your help, we fully delivered on that pledge to reward those who continue to serve after the hardships of the pandemic my FY 2024 budget proposes yet another $2,000 pay raise for teachers like Lauren. Meanwhile, for state lawmakers to consider also, anti-addiction advocates are calling for funding this legislative session for more peer-led treatment and recovery programs throughout Georgia. Now, the effort brought some bipartisan state lawmakers and hundreds of Georgians affected by affected by addiction, excuse me, to the Capitol building yesterday. Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities Commissioner Kevin Tanner says another top priority is growing the mental health provider workforce. Because for every vacant social worker position, there is a family who can't find treatment for their child. For every vacant nurse position in a state hospital, there's an individual in crisis who is stuck in a jail or an emergency room who needs help. Now, expanding the provider workforce was a major goal of that bipartisan Mental Health Parity Act that passed last year. A judge is deciding when to make public that final report of a grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Prosecutors are asking for the report to stay secret for now, as we hear from WABE's Sam Greenglass. A year after a judge approved this special grand jury, the panel has finished interviewing 75 witnesses. But Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis is asking to keep the report under wraps for now. It may include recommendations for criminal charges, and Willis hasn't announced yet whether she will seek them. She says that decision is imminent. We want to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And we think for future defendants to be treated fairly, it's not appropriate at this time to have this report released. Lawyers for a coalition of media outlets say the public interest outweighs that. Judge Robert McBurney is expected to rule in the coming days. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And when the judge makes that decision, you'll hear all about it here on WABE. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We know legislative sessions are underway across the country, and according to the ACLU, they are currently tracking 185 what they consider anti-LGBTQ bills in many state legislatures. Now, the organization says it includes bills to, quote, limit access to gender-affirming health care, some measures to undermine non-discrimination laws, some bans on what they call drag shows, also preventing people who identify as trans from updating their IDs and for some playing for school teams they identify with. Now, Georgia is not among the states the ACLU is, quote, watching, but other organizations have specific issues and measures they're keeping a watchful eye on. For example, Georgia Quality and its executive director, Jeff Graham, joins me here in studio. We were joking before we came on the air that you and I are seasoned in our respective Spaces. We are definitely seasoned. <laughs> what does season mean? <laughs> <laughs> Let's back up for a moment, because um, I always save this question for last when I ask folks why they do what they do and why they've been doing this work for so long. 
don't know if I've ever asked you that. I've had many conversations with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I have I've been doing this for a long, long time since the since the uh, mid '80s. I've been doing it. First of all, you know, I, I do it. I continue to do it because I've been uh, privileged and lucky enough to have support um, to be able to do this as as a as a career. And a lot of people just don't have that support. Mm-hmm. Can't say that. So so that that is part of the answer. But you know, really, what what motivates me is um, especially doing this work here in Georgia. And uh, with the ability of having done this for so long, I can look in the rearview mirror and I can see how far we've come. That was my next question. When you look back to the 80s and mm-hmm. even just the national conversation, if you could have one, as it relates to LGBTQ communities and, and all those tentacles, the quality of life tied to it, yeah. some would say, well, you, we're not where we used to be, which is a good thing, but we still have a long way to go. What areas have do you feel have been great progress in on a national level here? Certainly, uh, I think the greatest progress that we have made is within understanding and acceptance within our families. I, you know, I, so when I first came out, I, you know, I, at the age of 19, when I was a college student, I, first of all, it was, it was very rare. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of folks were, were surprised that I'd come out so early. Uh, but the number one issue that people really struggled with was uh, their their families rejecting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while that still happens, and mm-hmm. it certainly happens here in the South, and it happens certainly in some rural communities as well as urban communities, mm-hmm. no community is immune from that, uh, it happens with, with less frequency. And uh, even more so, uh, it is not uncommon for kids to come out at younger ages. Mm -hmm. And I think most people, when they do come out, they will reflect that from an early age, they knew that they were different. And so uh, it's not that kids are are understanding it earlier and earlier. Mm -hmm. It's that families are being supportive earlier and earlier and understanding this is just the fabric of society. It's just a difference that people have. And then unfortunately, there are some instances where families may not be supportive yes. or and we're going to talk later uh, sometime this month uh, about it's, it's still the increasing amount of uh, our trans youth who are unsheltered uh, LGBTQ yep. youth who are unsheltered who've had to leave their households because of not having that support and other issues mm-hmm. as well but Jeff from a legislative standpoint there have been some strides so I want you I guess if this is a checklist you know someone may say that the Marriage Equality Act uh, how mm-hmm. are you feeling right now in terms of that being stable and secure despite what came out of that leaked memo in the draft yeah. from yeah you know the, the 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 passage of the Respect for Marriage Act is, is one of the things that I I am most proud to have been involved with and and certainly you know from a legal perspective that it, it shores up the Supreme Court ruling uh, it really does provide some federal protections states should the the Obergefell uh, decision be overturned at some point in time states would still have the ability to perhaps uh, refuse to uh, issue civil marriage licenses to same-sex couples or interracial couples Uh, but the federal protections that go along with that wouldn't go away Mm -hmm. and states would be required to recognize marriages from from uh, from other states so it does provide some security and stability but what's more important about that decision or the passage of that bill is that it was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we had conservative faith groups like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, like mm-hmm. the Seventh-day Adventists, like the Orthodox Rabbi Union that came out in support of that particular piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think is some of the most remarkable and hopeful pieces of that passage, because it shows that we can actually have dialogue with those that would be painted as our mm-hmm. opponents to find common ground. And and that great things can happen if we just stay in dialogue long enough to find that common ground. But as it appears, we bring this closer to home to Georgia, that that common dialogue, that common ground around dialogue seems to uh, vanish when it comes to political seasons or election seasons because the bases and the two major parties, they want to play to their base. And depending on who the candidate is, you know, Jeff, you, this is not new to you. Then That's some right. of those, what some would 
say are discriminatory efforts, they rear their ugly head again. Well, and and, and certainly, uh, you know, unfortunately, politics can be very divisive, especially around election time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Georgia Equality, we're we're right in the middle of, of that of that mix. Um, but, uh, and, and I think one of the challenges that we'll be facing, uh, many of us in, in the future is, uh, as we enter into an era of being a, a swing state and the amount of money that will be pouring into Georgia in mm-hmm. the upcoming elections and, and how high these stakes will be, will be to not cave into those forces that will permanently tear us apart. And I, you know, part of what keeps me going is I, I do have hope that we can find our better selves. But when you look at on the state level and some of the measures that did pass and, and you look at particularly with our, our, our LGBTQ youth mm-hmm. as it relates to sports teams, things of that nature, you know, how do you want, do you feel like you still don't have the advocacy support at, at the general assembly level that you would like? You know, I think if, if you uh, look at uh, referencing back to the ACLU report mm-hmm. that, that you mentioned, um, uh, while there is a policy shift uh, around transgender athletes uh, participating in high school uh, extracurricular activities mm-hmm. that I wish the Georgia High School Association had not issued this policy change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 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 a far cry from what has passed in, in other states. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that uh, you know, one Senate candidate uh, made this a strong policy position and he lost his race. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not an issue that Georgia voters care about. Mm-hmm. They care about the economy. They care about housing. They care about um, uh, access to, to, to health care. Um, and I, I hope that this is where we can find some bipartisanship Going forward, I have lots of conversations with uh, Republican elected officials at a number of levels. Mm. And I, I do believe that we are close to that tipping point where we'll, we will see more bipartisan support for legislation. I think some good examples is where we've come on HIV mm-hmm. and HIV policy. Last year was arguably one of the best and most successful sessions for all people living with HIV and AIDS. We and when you think about it, we changed... To- 2022. Uh, this fight's been on for yep, such a long su- time. Such a long time, but it but it happened, and and it has a disproportionate impact on the LGBTQ community, but it affects all communities, and it required uh, Republican leadership to make sure that that happened. Given this legislative session now, and it's being touted as one that's very diverse. We have two historic caucuses: the Asian American Pacific Islander and Hispanic caucuses that never happened, and then yep. you know that, and it appears based on what the speaker has said, that he wants a more bipartisan approach to all these measures. Is that affirming to you? It's very affirming to me. Uh, first of all, the, the the numbers are there. I you know I'm I'm, I'm good at basic math. Um, higher math, eh, maybe not so much. <laughs> but the basic math of of, of counting uh, the number of votes you need to pass a bill. Um, that's why we talk about creating a fair majority as mm-hmm. opposed to electing Democrats or, or progressives. It's it's electing a fair majority because that's what it's going to take to pass things here in Georgia. That's also what it takes to uh, to prevent bad things from passing here in Georgia. And I uh, you know I, I I do believe that we can find common ground on that. Uh, we've seen great examples with the. Uh, mental health mm-hmm. reform bill that that passed last year. I think that that's going to be an important issue to go forward. I think that this is then where we kind of enter into the conversation. How do we make sure that that uh, LGBT Georgians have access on a same basis with everyone else when we're reforming a major system like mental health and substance abuse? When you all are coming up with your targeted legislative measures or issues that you want to focus on for for a session. Who are you? Obviously, I know what community you're getting input from, but how do you all decide what you really want to push here? Well, you know, a lot of it depends on one on one conversations Mm -hmm. with uh, Republican committee chairs, uh, Republicans in leadership to see uh, where where they feel that we should go. Um, You know, as you and I have discussed many times over the last several years, our number one goal is to pass a statewide non-discrimination or civil rights bill, because Mm -hmm. Georgia is one of only three states Mm -hmm. that does not have one on the book that protects any community whatsoever. And the pushback has always been, well, there are federal protections. And there are federal protections, Mm -hmm. yes. But there are gaps when it comes to small businesses. Mm -hmm. There are gaps in the federal law when it comes to 
women, cisgender women. Uh, there are gaps in the law, frankly, when it comes to protecting people of faith. Uh, and so instead of this being a divisive uh, uh, debate over whose rights are more important than someone else's, if we would do what 27 other states have done mm-hmm. and pass this, but then do what 28 other states have done and include sexual orientation and gender identity along with the other protected categories, that then gives an even playing field that when there is conflict, the courts step in and resolve that. That's how our system of government is supposed to work. And that would be the role of the courts. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Jeff Graham. He's executive director of Georgia Equality. Well, let's let's stop there and talk about that for a moment, because is it the messaging? Is it the, the way the bill is being proposed? Has that been the issue? Because sometimes it a bill can, and I hate using this term, die or not make it because of just wording and, and phrasing. And it for some lawmakers, oh, that, you can strike out a, a line and they're like, oh, OK, now I get it. I think a lot of it, frankly, is, is has been the politics mm-hmm. behind it. And and that's where I think that we may be at a tipping point around the politics. And that's where I'll go back to the Respect for Marriage Act. Uh, we saw that there were some basic common sense religious exemptions that were put into the Respect for Marriage Act. Mm-hmm. And that's what allowed these conservative faith organizations to come on board. Uh, we know that if we uh, introduced legislation here in Georgia, that it, we would need to have some conversations around uh, religious exemptions. I'm happy to have those conversations. I'm happy to hear where some faith leaders may have some concerns. Where I draw the line mm-hmm. is any passage of any law that diminishes my humanity or the humanity of the people that I'm here to serve, mm-hmm. LGBTQ Georgians their families, their communities. Uh, If there is respect for our humanity, then we can begin to have some dialogue to see if we can iron out our differences. And there is some language that has been introduced and even passed in Mm -hmm. some other parts of the country. I think Arizona is a good place to look for some potential models. Utah is another place to look for some potential models. Utah. Uh, Utah, of all places. Some folks, I I can see now some eyebrows going, really? Yeah. And that's yeah. not a slam on Utah. It's just knowing the history it's, of yep. that state. And people yeah. people get surprised. Yeah. Um, and and I and and you know if you just look at Georgia, Georgia is a very very moderate state. That's why we are a swing state. That's the kind of the history of what is successful and what is unsuccessful down at the legislature. And so I, I don't know that we're going to be there this year or yeah. not. Mm-hmm. But frankly, this is what we have conversations about all the time. And in two years ago, for the first time, we actually had a hearing. I, it was actually the first time in the legislature mm-hmm. that we'd had this hearing, but that hearing was in a Senate-led committee to talk about should we have this here in Georgia Was it in the wrong not. committee? Because I remember. No, it was in the right it was, committee. It was in the right committee. It was in the exact right committee. That's the committee where ultimately this legislation would show up. And to have it in the Senate is exactly the right chamber to start these conversations because the Senate is arguably more conservative mm-hmm. than the House. Um, uh, and, and the Senate is where there will be probably a Republicans in charge for the next decade. Mm-hmm. And so to start these conversations in the Senate are incredibly important. And what came out from that uh, hearing was, uh, first of all, no one showed up to oppose it. Mm-hmm. But second of all, it was an opportunity for us to take a look at the fact that uh, 12% of the state is already living in a municipality that has these protections. So why not make it statewide? So why not make it statewide? And for the business community, which is something that's always important to for the mm-hmm. legislature to take a look at, they they define this uh, as as looking at a lot of business interests. Uh, it is easier but you'll get businesses for, uh, that might push back and say, you know, here we have big government and, and Brian but, Governor Kempis said, you know, he doesn't want to go in and tell, you know, local municipalities how they should govern. But if you have yep. a statewide. And and that's where we're, we, we continue to do a lot of organizing with the business community. We've done large corporations. We, we need to do a better job of, of uh, organizing, mobilizing smaller businesses so that they, they understand this. But frankly, you know, uh, very conservative Supreme Court a couple mm-hmm. years ago with the Bostock decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, employment law does protect 
uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. But since it's not explicitly spelled out in the law, that's where businesses can get in trouble. So I would say it's not over-regulation. Mm-hmm. It is making uh, a, a, a legal fact due to a court decision relevant into people's lives by putting it into law in common sense language that they can understand so that business owners don't inadvertently do the Mm -hmm. wrong thing. There are some bad apples out there that will intentionally do the bad thing, but there's going to be other business owners that just don't know. And that's where having a law like this can actually serve the interests of business. Speaking of the interests of everyone, um, how are you all, through your lens, in terms of assessing the different and specific issues related to sub- ethnic groups within the LGBT community because there are some issues that our, our, our black trans brothers and sisters may face that our Asian American trans, it's a whole, you, you know that, that yep. it's a whole different set of issues for some groups. Are you all working to get a better understanding? Do you think you have a better understanding now than when you first started? Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's. I, I think uh, yeah. Just from the perspective of Georgia Equality, it is it is. Uh, it, it couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we went through a process as an organization. Uh, and announced this a couple of years ago uh, with a new strategic plan that really, uh, one, uh, looks at our work more in terms of equity than equality. So not just a playing field for Mm -hmm. everybody, but recognizing that different individuals, different communities um, have different needs Mm -hmm. to be able to succeed uh, and, 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 and benefit from laws and legislation. Uh, the second part of it is is to then root not just equity, but really prioritize racial equity, first and foremost, mm-hmm. uh, gender uh, equity, second of all, and then geographic equity, because mm-hmm. there are splits between urban, suburban, and rural communities Absolutely. in Georgia. That's how we've defined it as an organization. It's a journey that we're on, and we hope that the community will help hold us accountable. For how that. diverse is your organization to make sure that there is representation? Yeah, you know, uh, so from a staff perspective, um, I you know, uh, we're in the process of hiring some uh, about uh, four new positions mm-hmm. that we will hire in in the coming months. But right now, uh, the staff is uh, uh, almost evenly split mm-hmm. between uh, staff that identify as white and staff that identify as, as people of color. We've got transgender folks on mm-hmm. staff. We've got uh, staff in ages from. Uh, their late twenties and early thirties, all the way up to my age, in the you know the, <laughs> the, season. the late fifties, mm-hmm. the seasoned ones. Um, uh, so I think that that's important for the staff. The board actually is the same thing. It uh, the the majority, the slight majority of our board identifies people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I about forty percent of our board are from folks from outside of Metro Atlanta, uh, and we also have a, a variety of age ranges mm-hmm. when it comes to, to board membership. Now, on tomorrow's Closer Look, we're going to have representatives from the Long Cabin Republicans here at, 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 I think, Georgia and maybe state or national, I'm not sure. But they represent, obviously, the what consider the conservative group of the LGBT community. Where are you all with, with you mentioned Republicans throughout this conversation, yeah. having to talk to them, but... What is the relationship you have with the law cabin Republicans? You know, it it, it has varied over the years. At, at some points in times, it has been very very close. Um, other points in time, it has been a little bit more distant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the last couple of years, I think that they've really focused on uh, some more partisan issues. Uh, there, um, I, I I don't know that they are actually interested in. I, you know, looking at the sort of non-discrimination issues have y'all that we are them? looking at right now. We've not have, had recent conversations about this, no. Are you going to talk to them? I'm always open for, for conversation, yeah. Do you want to talk to them? Oh, absolutely. I'll talk to I'll talk to anybody. Do you have a question for them? I can ask them. <laughs> I can just play this clip. <laughs> you can play this clip. No, that's fine. It, you know, it, it, it really, you know, I, 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 I don't want there to to be a takeaway that there is a is a big divide again mm-hmm. i think that they work separately i also don't have a lot of meetings with uh, stonewall democrats either i you know we're we're kind of in this legislative mm-hmm. space where where we work uh when we did have uh, a, a big fights uh, about six or seven years ago mm-hmm. around uh, the so-called religious liberty bills, um, uh, Georgia log cabin Republicans and conservatives who do identify as LGBTQ uh, were right there with us in in that in that fight. 
Um, we've just not had those sorts of fights or issues that have come up the last few years. When we started this conversation and I asked you, you know, to reflect, reflect on how many years you've been doing this, been in this space, been fighting. Well, here's the other question. How long you want to continue to do this? <laughs> Uh, I'm as, not trying to push you out your, your position there, Jeff. You know, uh, 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 yeah, they gave me a, a sabbatical a couple of years ago, so I actually realized that there's a different way to live your life. Um, but, yeah, they, I, I hope that I will do this as long as I can be effective, because uh, that's what matters most to me, um, is, is, is being effective, having an impact, um, uh, and it, as long as folks want to work with me. And you know you've been doing this a long time. You've earned it because you finally got your WABE t-shirt i do <laughs> and i think you got a mug too <laughs> and, you know and, and i didn't have to make a monthly donation to do that now, although i that, do make a monthly I, donation well, i will i will say that right i am a monthly donor i think everybody should be i did not uh, i said that willingly <laughs> but having a free t-shirt and swag that's hey that's a good perk of being well on you the get show that today. when you come on the show at least eight times uh from georgia equality executive director jeff graham thank you so much for taking time i really appreciate it good to see you again thanks rose very much <laughs> And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Black women in Georgia are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women nationally. We know that. Georgia has the second highest maternal mortality rate in the nation. Now, while I re- while, why am I mentioning that as it relates to our next conversation? It's important because when you think about all of those factors that some women are experiencing when they're in the delivery room or their other families, think about this. Having to deal with disparaging comments or what some say is abuse or mistreatment. Recently, a group of local labor nurses posted a video on TikTok that has it went viral. Um, many of them mocking what they would say women in labor in terms of behavior and questions. And in the video, the nurses describe their icks about women in labor and some other circumstances. Now, icks is a term used to express disgust. I'm going to play a clip from that. I just want to caution you all that the one minute and three second video might be troubling for some to listen to. My ick is when you come in for your induction talking about, can I take a shower and eat? What? My ick is when you ask me how much the baby weighs and it's still and it's still in your hands. Dad comes outside and asks for a paternity test right outside the room door. Saying you don't want any pain medicine, no epidural but you are at an eight out of 10 pain just to serve a and you're still closed, fingertip. Well, we've already told you to push the call light, but every five minutes, your excuse family me, member coming at the front desk. Excuse me, ask you for something else. Excuse me, can I have a blanket? Another ick, when you're going room to room between one baby mama and your other baby mama. Oh, no. Ick. See <laughs> that. It's the unlimited trips to the nurses. Well, joining me now to talk more about this video and the mistreatment, abuse, and disrespect women, some women can face when giving birth and, and everything surrounding that, is Dr. Priscilla Hall, a nurse, midwife, and assistant professor at a local nursing school for one of our institutions. And Dr. Hall is joining us to speak on her own behalf and also her experiences. And we also should note that in re- relation to this, Emory Healthcare, we do know that I believe four of those the nurses had, they were their jobs were terminated. They were terminated. So, Dr. Hall, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. You're a researcher, correct? Yes, and a teacher. And a teacher. When you first heard about it or saw this now viral TikTok video, just your reaction. I think I know, but just your reaction. It was deeply, deeply troubling that that they would put it in public that um, they would show their faces. I think there's an arrogance to saying, I'm, I'm willing to say this in public, but I'm also willing to have it attached to me and to have people know, people that see me in the grocery store, people that work with me, people that see me at church, know mm-hmm. that, I, that I said this. this uh, there's, a, there's a callousness mm-hmm. to that. And given, as I mentioned, the maternal mortality rate in a state like Georgia, and obviously it's an issue throughout the nation as well, because there are so many other issues that women and their women giving birth and their families have to deal with around delivery, and then this comes about. Um, have you had conversations with 
nurses just to get their reaction and what'd you hear? I think most of my conversations were with my own midwife colleagues. Those are the people that I have the most Mm -hmm. connection with. And then I also teach nursing students. And of course, students are very, they're bright-eyed, they're idealistic still. They were appalled. I mean, I think the reaction was very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, Among, one of my students said she was kind of glad that they put it in public because it really did create a conversation. I mean, the the conversation just took off mm-hmm. about how do we treat women in labor and why is this problematic? And um, so that was one of the reactions. But the reactions from my midwife colleagues were the same as mine, just like, yeah. Doctors in med school and the folks in other related uh, fields, as they're going through their, their academic Progress. I mean, I know there. I don't know what the class is called, but I'm sure there is classes that that talk about how you 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 speak to your patients. You know, having the, a sense of, of empathy and and just respect. Uh, again, I don't know what the class is called, but I'm sure there are classes, right? Right? Not enough. Really? Um, no, I think in our school, well, in the midwifery profession is really embedded in kind of a feminist philosophy of respecting and trusting women's bodies. And so what's, it's really important to us and it's it's kind of articulated all along the entire educational process mm-hmm. that we need to respect women and treat women's bodies with absolute kindness and tenderness and um, make sure that the person is consenting um, to care and that they are in agreement with whatever we decide we need to do. Physicians, it's, I asked one of my colleagues that teaches physicians, and she said she was not aware. They may get one session with a mental health care provider that doesn't necessarily understand the process of labor and what actually mm-hmm. t- the vulnerability and the the state of a woman's body in labor. Um, so they don't necessarily get that really articulated Mm-hmm. perspective on what it means to respect someone um, during birth. So do you think it should be a series of, of, of classes, coursework in this, oh, yeah. and not just one course? One and done day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one seminar on it. No, I do think it needs to be added to the curriculum every step of the way, like all along. What does it mean to respect somebody when you're doing prenatal care Mm -hmm. in the office, what does it mean to respect someone when they come in the hospital for for some emergency care? What does it mean to respect them in labor? Um, You know, it needs to be articulated Mm -hmm. very specifically um, along the whole continuum of our education. What will this do for you in terms of with your students, what you can do? What can I do? You know, in the future, will it? I mean, you can't. I mean, can you add? You know, a couple of hours to listen. First of all, pay attention to this video, and I'm. And then let's talk about it. Let me tell you what you should and should not do. I mean, because it's it's beyond just posting of mm-hmm. this TikTok video. Oh yes, it's it's about the mentality behind it, the mindset. Um. Yeah. If it. it the system that we work in tends lends itself to being dehumanizing because there's such time pressure on the caregivers so that a physician, a nurse, a midwife, we all experience, you know, there's 20 people to be seen. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're able to see them in a specific amount of time, you can get through all your visits in 10 minutes and that, you know, it's done. That gets, those people are... Um, those people get noticed. They get um, respected. Oh, yeah, they that person finished their clinic schedule early. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who takes more time really reflects on, I'm here with a human being. Um, I need to treat them a certain way. And it takes time to do that. Mm-hmm. That person doesn't get any, any brownie points, so yeah. to speak. They get criticized for n- not getting in through their schedule. Wow. So they get, some get criticized, you oh, say, yeah. for not being able to progress as rapidly as others when this could be a situation where someone is taking their time, they really mm-hmm. want to understand what is fully expected of them beyond treatment and, and being there for, you know, folks and their families when they're 
delivering a mm-hmm. baby. Yeah. Huh. What do you make of that? There's a lot of levels that need to change. They're just, I, that would take a massive, massive structural change because reimbursements based on like how many visits you see and mm-hmm. we all need to earn our salaries and the system has to make a certain amount of money. That, that is, that's a long, long, long-term change. Well, listen, a, a viral video and if you're and it was because we all know it was Emory Healthcare. So if <laughs> if you're a healthcare system out there and you, if you don't learn anything from this, I don't know what to tell you. But um, and and not speaking for Emory Healthcare, but mm-hmm. the lessons learned here. If it's not going to be okay, how do we make sure that when we're we're teaching in the academic setting that we can address this? Then where do you do it? Because when they're hired as a nurse, yeah. I, I don't know what the onboarding process is. Uh, you know, I imagine it may not include, <laughs> with, you know. I think also if you don't want to be on public radio getting dogged out because your nurses did this, you're gonna have to do something, right? That's what you're saying. <laughs> I agree, but I I think that nurses do get they're they're feeling a lot of burnout. There is a nursing shortage right now, um, and it's not all nurses. We know that. No, no, obviously. no. God, no. Let's be very clear about that. Um, but there is a shortage at the moment, and nurses are doing more and more with less and less. So there's that stress, and that dehumanizes a person. The person doesn't, you stop thinking of this as a person in the bed. You're like, I gotta get this blood pressure, and I gotta Mm -hmm. get these bloods drawn, and they gotta go to the lab, and -and so-and-so needed something. You know, they wanted one more glass of water because they're anxious, and what they really want is for me to come in and talk to them. And just be reassuring. Yeah, and, Nurses are not in in a situation. They're not in a structure yeah. where that gets promoted, and so they they start compassionate and loving and caring, um, and bright eyed, and they they lose that after hmm. not very long. Why do you think there is this? And I've we've had this on our program before. The shortage of nurses. It's been about I think the last maybe de- the last decade. What do you think that is? That, is it stress related? Is it we we've talked about initiatives from mm-hmm. uh, I think Clayton State had an initiative to to uh, for getting more women of color um, as nurses. There have been federal. There have been lots of type of initiative programs, but it's still there's a there's a shortage of nurses here. And is is it stress related? You think it's stressful, but I think a nurse has a lot of responsibility and not a lot of power. And that is very that that's a. It's a recipe for burnout and compassion fatigue. I mean, mm. yeah, I mean, you really lose the compassion, that ability to see each human being as they are, um, and you just start running from room to room. Um, so I would really like to see nurses more respected and more have more, more space to mm-hmm. do the craft of nursing. Um, when you say they're running from room to room, I'm curious at... And through what you know or what you've experienced or what you hear, how many different patients could a, a team of nurses or one nurse be responsible for? And if you don't want to answer that because you don't know, that's fine. But you keep saying that they're running from room to room. So I think our listeners probably want to know, is it an overwhelming number of potentially? It's, it's enough that it's stressing the team of nurses and the each individual nurse. So I think in different areas, like in critical care, the the ratio of patient to nurse is a certain amount. And then in my area in maternal child, it's different. So mm-hmm. I can't speak to that exactly. Mm-hmm. But I do know that it is enough and it's persistent enough so that nurses are experiencing just profound amounts of burnout and stress. Um and I think there needs to be a very, very specific conversation about mm-hmm. how, how do we do this. And I honestly, I don't see the nurse taking care of patients at the bedside, mm-hmm. having her voice heard on the upper levels where mm-hmm. some of those discussions are taking place. Um, I, don't, I don't see it. When I'm at a hospital and I'm chatting with people and they're like, well, yeah, we're really busy and this is happening and that's happening. And I'm like, well, what forum do you use where you can, this gets heard. Mm -hmm. This can have space in in how the hospital plans its care. Can nurses associations be 
or shouldn't they be the advocate for nurses then to talk to healthcare systems and hospital systems to say this is what our members need? That is happening. It happens, yeah. That okay. is the the response of professional organizations. There's a little disconnect between like the larger professional organizations and the the nurse, the nurse who goes daily and takes care of patients directly. And I th- I think that's that's one of the difficulties. But I wish that the nurse that's taking care of patients directly had space for her voice because mm-hmm. I think that what that person is saying about what's happening with care is critically important um, mm. to the structure, to the to the major like plan of how how a hospital is doing stuff, mm. and um, I don't I don't see that enough yet. So voices being able to have some being able to have their voice heard. You talked about being overworked. Uh, I think I got a tweet from someone who said nursing shortages are aided by overwork, ratio of work, financial compensation limited. Asked to perform and work in non-evidence-based patient-nurse ratios. Yeah. Pretty much everything that you just said. The professional organizations establish what they think is safe for, like, how many nurses you should have for a critical care patient. Somebody that just came out of surgery with something in their brain. Mm -hmm. Um, Or um, a patient in labor a uh, normal patient in labor has a certain nurse to patient ratio, but a complicated patient in labor has a different. Mm-hmm. But nurses are just across the board. They're just taking anybody. It's like if there's seven nurses and 26 patients, mm-hmm. they divide them up, and that's how it happens. If this trend continues with this nursing shortage, and then given what we just see with this video, how concerning is it for you that? The shortage is going to really be at a critical, some say it's already at a critical, but to a, a level that is really dangerous to the community, to the society, because we just don't have enough nurses. It's dangerous now. Yeah. I think. I see it. And I think that this um, TikTok video is just, to me, it's a, it's clear evidence of that, that these nurses are so, that that is how they feel about their patients. Is 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 really it's it's just, it's compassion fatigue. It's like mm-hmm. I have really, I've gotten to the end of my ability to see someone that I'm taking care of as a human being. As Doctor Hart, you said that, and, and I know for some listeners, they say, "My goodness, if if someone who's really we rely on, and so many folks we rely on in the, in the medical and health field, and, and my goodness, look, COVID is really mm-hmm. if it, if it didn't amplify that for you out there, how how much we rely on." these folks mm-hmm. but if they're burned out or they're to a point where they are failing or it's they can't show empathy or sympathy or just basic human compassion <laughs> particularly for a stage in someone's life when they're giving birth yeah that's a problem it is so we shouldn't i know we're focusing on the video but then we got to go back to how do we prevent this mindset from even developing for so many nurses and I guess you just laid it out in the last 18 minutes, huh? I, you know, I, but I think it affects physicians as well. There's yep. a lot of burnout among physicians. And it needs to start with the educational process. On the, You know, and in terms of the individual, we need better education and more education about respectful care. But I think we need to understand much, much more clearly what brings a nurse back mm-hmm. from burnout. Like what brings back that ability to be empathic and hospitals need to put their need to put muscle behind exactly that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um did you know any of those you don't have to mention a name did you know any of those nurses i recognize their faces mm-hmm. i've done some work for emory when i was a graduate student and mm-hmm. so i i don't remember all the names but sure. yeah some of them i've rubbed elbows with if you are someone who needs to hire a nurse and 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 this is just through your lens uh, is there some type of now (laughs) it's like they do with DEI training your folks get in (laughs) trouble and they send them to training uh you know is there some type of training that can be involved so that these women these nurses could possibly work again and what should that look like? Is there, I don't know, I maybe you should develop see, a DEI for <laughs> nurses. Now that's an interesting concept. 
I there was a hospital in the UK that so there's some a lot of noise from the UK about you know their whole entire system has just problems with compassion fatigue mm-hmm. and burnout yeah. and there was a hospital that they kept doing these interventions and trying and trying to get people to treat patients kinder and to follow standard practices and um, they finally decided every last person in that facility was going to go to um, learn meditation and compassion training. Okay. They sent every, they're, they're like the cleaning ladies, the people in the... Everybody in the building. Mm-hmm. Wow. They all had to go to compassion training. Well, perhaps that's needed. Dr. Priscilla Hall, and she is a nurse midwife and assistant professor in a, at a local nursing school and also a researcher. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we should note you reached out to us. You wanted to talk about this conversation. I did. Uh, this is what we want on Closer. Now, everybody email me. Don't say, well, I want to talk to you about this. There's some things y'all want to talk about I don't want to talk about because it has nothing to do with the community. <laughs> but we. this is what we encourage on this program. We want the community to be part of our conversations. So we welcome this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition. Closer Look is produced by LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, as you always do. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Now, stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.